Most of us know, likely by experience, that new believers and new churches are much better at evangelism than older, established, seasoned, mature believers and churches. That is, the so-called conversion growth rate is much higher in new churches than established churches. What is the conversion growth rate? Very simply, it is the number of new believers in the church divided by the size of the church indicating a percentage of conversion growth. Don't miss that. This is not growth by existing believers coming to the church, so-called rearranging the saints, but, but growth by new believers, by evangelism. It's much higher in new churches. Why is that? Staff recently read a book together titled The Unstuck Church in which the author suggests that new churches are committed to evangelism by both passion and necessity. By passion because <laughs> they're actually committed to the Great Commission. And by necessity because if they want to grow and become viable and move out of the pastor's living room, they need more people. He then also suggested as churches grow and become established, kind of go through a life cycle. They become more inwardly focused on programs and, and maintenance, maintaining what we have, focusing, frankly, on themselves. And they forget then the call to make disciples through outreach, through evangelism, and then discipling new believers. Why is it that new believers are more passionate about sharing their faith than older, mature believers. I suppose I could ask it this way. Why are new believers more committed to carrying out Christ's last command than mature believers? Read lots of books, so lots of reasons given. Apathy, fear, lack of compassion, busyness, distraction, the, the, the reasons are endless. You see, new, believe, new believers have experienced the incredible grace of God afresh, and they, can't, they just can't seem to keep quiet about it. <laughs> but, but given time with fam failure, familiarity, and fear and shame, <laughs> they often join the ranks of mature believers. Does that seem backward to you? Recently read a blog entitled, How to Douse the Evangelism Passion of a New Believer. <laughs> Intriguing title. This is written by a youth evangelist. He begins with, it's rather lengthy, but I think it's helpful, insightful. Have you ever been around a, a teen who has passed out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light? Their eyes have been opened, enlightened, if you will, and, and they are thrilled about the new relationship with Jesus they just discovered. They, they, the genuine joy and freedom that, that come from Jesus' grace and forgiveness spontaneously bubble up out of their souls. It's, it's like they've just won the lottery, $1.6 billion. And they want to tell everyone the good news. Can you imagine winning $1.6 and not telling anybody? What you have is better. 
What's the typical response of the church to this unbridled new believer excitement? Why, of course, we douse it. Isn't that cute? We say to each other with a knowing smile and wink. I remember back when I was idealistic and naive too. And then we quickly shoved them into a 12-week discipleship course and exegete all the excitement right out of them. Not sure about that sentence. Our goal is to make them as boring as the rest of us. Perhaps because we're uncomfortable about our own lack of zeal for the good news that long ago transformed our lives. We justify it by assuring the new Christian who's on fire for Christ that there's so much they need to know before they can try to tell others about Jesus. You'll be eaten, you'll get eaten alive, we say protectively. <laughs> Someone might just make fun of you, horror of horrors. And that might make you want to turn tail and abandon your new faith. So it's best to just wait until you're older and know more before you try to tell others about the gospel. Wait till you're a mature Christian like me, we say. So it's a well-intentioned dousing, isn't it? I wonder if most of us can remember times in our own lives of evangelistic passion. When come what may, we were eager to share. But then, as this writer suggested, perhaps we tried and, and, and failed. We, we tried and were eaten alive, ridiculed, opposed, shamed. And so we matured. And yet, it is, not, is not being ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ a a mark of a true believer, or at least an obedient one, come what may. Our study of the book of Hebrews, we have found the authors writing to Jewish believers who faced opposition for their new faith in Jesus. You see, early on, as new believers, they, they, they were apparently open, dare I say excited about their faith, but, but it cost them. As a result, they were actually considering returning to Judaism, abandoning Christ and His gospel and returning to Moses and the law, which we have seen never justified anyone uh, forever. And so the author writes to encourage and warn them. I, I won't review all that again, but the, the warnings have been severe. The one last week, I know, likely troubled many of you. We were frankly reminded that to walk away from Jesus and the truth of the gospel means that there remains no more sacrifice for sin to reconcile us to God. Oh, no. Walk away and there only remains a certain terrifying expectation of judgment and a fire of God's fury. Last words last week to those who were considering walking away to... To those who would stop meeting together, <laughs> oh, not, not because uh, the things that distract us, you know, a focus on earthly, temporal things like wealth and pleasure. No, no, no. So, some had stopped meeting because of fear, because of opposition. But by quitting, the author says, they were putting themselves at eternal risk. And so the last words to them last week were, you think that's scary? That this opposition, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It was a severe warning. 
But now, as he often does in this letter, having warned them, he immediately turns to encouragement. He wraps his arms around them. Here he encourages them by calling them to remember past suffering and sacrifice more, to to remember how they responded to past suffering and sacrifice, proving the reality of their faith. You really are Christians. Therefore, he draws a conclusion. Therefore, he calls them to endure again. He never promises that it's going to get better in this life. Read the text with me, Hebrews 10, verses 32 to the end of the chapter. But remember the former days when, after being enlightened and saved, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and and partly by becoming sharers Interesting word. Fellowship is actually the word. (laughs) Fellowshipping with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property. Knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. Therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. For yet, in a very little while, he who is coming will come, not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. Do you remember do you remember the former days? Maybe a few years for some of you when you first came to faith in Christ. Do you remember then and perhaps sometimes since that you had a passion for Jesus and and his gospel come what may. I outline the text for you. It's simple this week that remember the past and during the present. Hope for the future. He's just finished, you see, this severe warning. And and now he continues with the word, but. Thank God for that. It's a contrasting contrasting conjunction. It ties what's come before. It's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But, But remember, remember the former days when you, you had just been enlightened. You use that word back in chapter six, the previous severe warning. We, we saw that it refers to those who had just been enlightened by the gospel. They'd, they'd come alive in Christ, a saving faith in Jesus. They transferred again from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. So he says, remember the former days after you became a Christian, you endured a great conflict of sufferings. Remember that? Isn't that exciting? Is that the way you would encourage someone? Why had they endured this conflict of sufferings? Well, clearly it's because they had become Christians. It's the fine print of the gospel. You become a Christian, it's going to cost you. Jesus promised it uh, over and over. If they persecute me, they will persecute you. The New Testament is full of promises of suffering. Paul said, it has been granted to you not only to believe in Jesus, but also to suffer for his sake. Opposition, persecution, sacrifice, and suffering are all part of the Christian life. And if someone tells you otherwise, they are lying. Notice, it was a great conflict of suffering. Could be translated a great contest 
of suffering. The word contest is the word from which we actually get our word athletics. New Testament authors, especially this one, chapter 12, um, liken the Christian life to an athletic contest. Why? Because of the discipline and hard work required to be a successful athlete. So, so here, this was a great contest of sufferings. Notice the plural. This was serious, ongoing opposition. Now, we'll learn in chapter 12, they had not yet experienced martyrdom, but it was coming. And so, understandably, they were struggling. I, I get that. So the author encourages them by reminding them of past sufferings. Is that the way you would do it? Notice he does not say, remember when you first came to faith in Christ, how good everything was? Life was happy and carefree and good and, and prosperous. This is just simply a bump in the road. No. He didn't say that. He says, remember your past suffering? More. How, how you endured before? And I would say to, to many of you who have perhaps suffered in the past for being open in your faith, Maybe you were open at some point, and maybe it cost you. Can I remind you of something? You're still here. You're still here. And it was likely in those times of suffering that you grew more faithfully and, and steadily. You, you, you see, God's grace was sufficient then. That's his point, and it will be sufficient now. And even if, if you die... What's the worst that can happen? How have they suffered? He tells us in verses 33 and 34, partly by being made a public spectacle. The opposition to them was put on public display. It's a word from which we get our word theater. It's interesting. This opposition was like watching a TV show. Everyone saw it. They were publicly reviled through reproaches. Ridicule, taunts, disgraces, insults. But it seemed to go beyond just this public ridicule. It included tribulations or afflictions as well. That, that word actually speaks of physical harm, physical violence. The result in loss of job, livelihood, loss of property or possessions, as we'll see in a moment. Further, even if they were not the targets of these verbal and physical attacks, verbal and physical attacks, they became sharers. They fellowshiped with those who were so treated. How? Well, we read they identified with those being persecuted, and as a result, they no doubt received their own share of mistreatment. Well, one way they identified was to show sympathy for those in prison. Their hearts went out to those in prison such that they actually did something about it. They had compassion on them. Now, we need to talk about this for just a moment. Often terribly misconstrued. Back then, prisoners were not well cared for. In fact, they received only the very, very bare minimum to survive. In many cases, much less than that. Prisoners were not pampered. They were punished. They, they, they were actually dependent on friends and family to visit them to take care of their daily physical needs, literally bring them food and water and clothing because if they didn't, they wouldn't have it. They might die. Later in chapter 13, this author will tell them, remember those in prison as if with them. You see. But to do so was to identify with that particular prisoner. Now, here it is very clear that these prisoners were prisoners 
because of their faith, because of the opposition. And so to visit them, to meet their physical needs was to identify with their faith and thereby put yourself at risk. This, by the way, is what Jesus meant when he said in Matthew chapter 25, which we looked at last week, when he separated the sheep from the goats, remember that? Well, who were the sheep? Well, he told us. Well, when, when I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was a stranger, you invited me in. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was in prison, when I was in prison, you came to me. And you know the rest of the passage. They said, when did we do all of those things to you, Jesus? And he responds with, inasmuch as you did it to the least of these, my brothers. You did it for me. Do not miss my brothers. In other words, you did this for other Christians. Just this week, Tana and I went to a Christian concert down in Charlotte with some friends. As is often the case, in the middle, right before the intermission, there was a presentation of some great needs for a village in Mozambique. The author walked, I mean the author, the the, the presenter um, uh, walked on stage and began reading by by reading that Matthew 25 passage. I was hungry, you gave me something to eat when I was thirsty. Then he talked about how village children needed food and clothing and clean water, complete with pictures that will rip your heart right out. They needed monthly sponsors for only $33 a month. He, again, lots of videos that no doubt, no doubt tugged on our hearts. Then he read the text again. In in his presentation, he read the text again, this time leaving out those very important words, my, he left it out. He then pleaded with us to give. He finished with, the first thing that he was going to do with the money that we provided was to provide clean water. No doubt this was a need. But I had two significant challenges with his very long, heartfelt presentation. First, I noticed that it was completely, listen to me, completely devoid of the gospel. Now, I suppose he may take the gospel with him, but there was no mention of that at all. Second problem I had was his misapplication of the text. Inasmuch as you did this for the least of these, my brothers. Jesus is talking about Christian care for others as we suffer for the gospel. Now to be, listen, do not leave from here saying, Scott doesn't think that we should care about poor children in the world. That is not what I am saying. Don't make me into a monster. Some say too late. To be clear, we should be involved in so-called social justice. I guess that means there are social needs that we should justly care for. Okay, we should. And in fact, Christians have led the way in providing medical care and and clean water and food, etc. We should do that. But we should be sure to take the gospel with us. And we should also not misapply the word of God to motivate, further manipulate Christian hearts. Can we use the word of God rightly? These people 
willingly put themselves at risk of personal harm by visiting other believers who were in prison for their faith. If you want to start a prison ministry to go visit prisoners to share the gospel, that's great. We'll support you. That is wonderful. But don't use Matthew 25 unless they're in prison because of their faith. Do you see the difference? Further, in addition to showing sympathy to the prisoners, we read they accepted joyfully the seizure of their property. Somehow, he doesn't spell it out, but somehow these believers, because of their faith, through personal reproaches or tribulations, identifying with those so treated, they accepted the loss of property. What was that? What, goods, houses, lands, possessions? Doesn't, again, doesn't spell it out. Was it official governmental action or was it just mob violence? We don't know. I, we do know, historically speaking, that there's lots of evidence that communities at this time um, were running out certain groups of people, like Jews and Christians. They seem to be the favorite targets. Who, who, and then they subsequently seized their property and their possessions. This really happened historically. Because of their faith, they lost their possessions. What was that? Was it wealth? I don't know. Meager belongings? Don't know. But it seems that it was a significant loss. Those things that we work for all of our lives and hold tightly and dear. Notice he said they joyfully accepted the seizure of their property. What? I mean, how could they do that? I'm quickly reminded of two other New Testament passages. One, an instruction from Jesus himself. The other, a story of the early church in Matthew 5. Jesus is giving his famous uh, Sermon on the Mount, and he starts with the Beatitudes. Remember that? The Beatitudes, we hear the word Beatitude. Sometimes you might, you might see a, tra- a modern translation that says, happy, blessed are those, blessed are the poor, but happy. Happy is not the right word, just to be clear. You might be happy because your team won yesterday. That will last as long as they keep winning. When they lose, you're no longer happy. You might be happy because you get the, just the Christmas present that you want for Christmas, and it will last until about New Year. You see, happy is, content, is dependent on outward circumstances. That's not the word here. It is, speaks of an inward joy that is actually independent of outward circumstances. Blessed, you see. He ends with this one. Blessed. Inward joy are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed inward joy are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Then he actually says these words. This is Bible. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. Really. We're supposed to be happy. No, not happy. Joy-filled. Rejoice and be glad when people persecute us for our faith. Second one is a story found in the New Testament in Acts chapter 5. Let me summarize it quickly. The apostles were performing many miracles and preaching the gospel. Don't miss that. They did both. They were doing miracles, usually, usually miracles of healing. They didn't even need hospitals and preaching the gospel. They did it together. They were arrested by the high priest who put them in jail overnight. An angel shows up in the middle of the night, rescues them. What did they do? Did they run? No. They went right back to the temple and kept preaching. The temple police were sent to get them out of the jail cells. They were not there. They said, well, where are they? Well, back in the temple preaching the gospel. 
So they went and got him, brought him to the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling body, who questioned them and then flogged them. That means they beat them. In order then not to speak in the name of Jesus anymore. Release them. Then we read these two very incredible verses. So they went on their way from the presence of the council of the Sanhedrin, rejoicing. What? Rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer for his name. Is that, is that what you would have done? Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. And every day in the temple from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. How? How in the world did they not only keep preaching but rejoice that they were considered worthy to suffer? Now, how in the world are we supposed to rejoice and be glad when persecuted? How in the world did the first readers of Hebrews accept joyfully the seizure of their property? The rest of verse 34, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. That's how. Two things to notice about this possession that we right now have that awaits us for future fulfillment. First, it is better. A favorite word of this author. Better than what? Well, I don't know. Whatever you have. It's better. It's better than whatever you pine for, whatever you have, whatever you covet when you see the lifestyles of the rich and famous, whatever it is that you want. You already have promised is better, infinitely so. Second, it's a lasting possession. It's lasting. So, you want to confiscate my stuff? <laughs> Take it. I don't care. I have an inheritance you can't touch that will never pass away. It is lasting. All of those things, again, that we want, that we covet, will one day be mothballed in a dump, rusted and rotted away. But the possession that we have in Christ, for which we wait, in full fulfillment is lasting and eternal. It is completely opposite, by the way, of this world's philosophy. Buy now, pay later. He's saying sacrifice now. Receive later. All of that has passed. I've got two minutes to cover the last two points. Point two, endure in the present. Notice verse 35 begins with the word therefore. Having remembered the former days in which you endured. (laughs) That's supposed to be an encouragement, by the way. Do not now throw away your confidence. That is your confidence in Christ and his gospel. Hold on to it. Persevere. Don't discard it. Don't throw it away. Because it, is a, it has a great reward coming. The New Testament, don't miss this. The New Testament never shies away from holding out the promise of reward as motivation for persevering. The best is yet to come, my brothers and sisters. I hold it out to you. The author of Hebrews says, I hold it out. The best is yet to come. Hold on. Then he says, we have need of endurance. You need to remember your past endurance and use that as an encouragement for present endurance. I would love to sit and stand here and tell you that it's going to get better and better in this life. It's not. Remember the context. They were considering quitting Christianity because of their suffering, which was now approaching martyrdom. He reminds them of their past suffering as an encouragement to continue suffering. And enduring. You did it before, now keep doing it. 
By the way, this presupposes the context that we keep on meeting together. These who were not meeting together, they stopped meeting because they were afraid. He says, no, listen, there's no such thing as incognito Christianity. It costs to share your faith in the past. Keep sharing it and keep suffering joyfully because when you have done the will of God, remaining faithful to Christ, you will receive what is promised. You have an eternal inheritance that awaits. Point three, keep your hope fixed firmly on the future, verses 37 to 39. As he does more than any other author, he now quotes the Old Testament for biblical support. He quotes Habakkuk chapter two. In verse 37, he reminds us in a very little while, brothers and sisters, I need you to listen. In a very little while, while he who is coming I like the literal translation better the coming one will come what does that mean it means that Jesus the one who left and promised to return will come yes I know that it's been a little while you say no it's been a long no it hasn't in light of eternity it's been a little while he's coming he's coming The coming one will come. Verse 38, my righteous one shall live by faith, trusting the promise of his coming to make all things right. I know it costs you, but continue to live by faith, believe me, because if he shrinks back, God says, my soul will have no pleasure in him. Just a little dig, a little prick to remind us of the earlier warning to shrink back from the Christian faith is to invite certain terrifying judgment because God will have no pleasure in the one who shrinks back. But verse 39, (laughs) and here's the encouragement. We are not of those who shrink back to destruction. That's not who we are. We are, the, we are not those who will desert Christ and his gospel. We are of those who have faith resulting in the preserving or the saving, the eternal saving of our eternal souls. I'm out of time. Last week I challenged you not to be ashamed, but to share the gospel with one person. Did you? Or did forgetfulness or, or fear or failure or familiarity or shame keep you from sharing? I, I pray not. Because you see, we are not of those who shrink back. We are of those who share Christ. We declare publicly that we are followers of Christ. Won't you join us? Won't you join us? Come what? Nay.